You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. I'm afraid, Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. Well, look at you now. You just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Nerds! Check it out. It's comedians trying to talk about philosophy uh, with like zero background. That's funny. You know, there's you know who does that kind of stuff too is Tom. Uh, is it Tom Rogan? Nah, Tom. Seth. Seth Rogan. Is that his name? Seth Rogan? No. Oh man, no. why am my memory Joe is back Rogan. today? What? Joe? Yeah, Joe. The Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. That good. Yeah, he's he super into like. Yeah, he has drugs. these bizarre podcasts though, where they—I mean, some of them talk almost semi-seriously, but they get—they do it from like a really kind of far-out kind of perspective. But they talk, you know, talk about string theory and uh, uh, the simulation hypothesis. You know, some of these fringe stuff that gets far out there is um, uh, interesting for yeah. anyone to talk about. But they go pretty—it's pretty pretty hilarious. Uh, and one of the—I guess I one of the ones I was listening to was the one where they were talking about. Um, I don't know if you heard this, and I don't even know how serious to take this, but there was a there's a physicist who's claiming that there are kind of error correction codes inside the equations of superstring theory, um, where error correction code is a way of uh, uh, making sure that when you're transferring data from one place to another, um, it's a way of sort of making sure that the data is faithfully replicated. You know, the most the the most easiest in classical kind of these things just to repeat the thing a bunch of times. So if you want to send the message A, B, C, you send A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 or some number of those. And then if there's the weighted average of those is probably the true one. So if there's some miscommunication in the signal and it ends up with like some noise, you can look to see, well, what was the overall thing that they were trying to send and that way correct the error. So that's error correction code. So this physicist, and that's a simple, 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 there are other ways, and you know, in information theory, there are mathematical ways to do it, um, and right. uh, this is a big deal for like internet, the internet, because um, what, when you're trying to send signals across um, uh, large distances to these separate processing things, you need a way to make sure that you can correct for these errors, and there's a kind of mathematically formalized way to do this 
um, which, with Shannon information or something, I think. Uh, but anyway, so there's a way to do it, and people study this. And the guy was claiming that you, the same exact kind of system that you find in computer um, uh, systems that computer engineers came up with to kind of solve this problem, you see some the very same kind of thing in the equations of superstring theory. That's the claim that he's making. Um, and it's really, I mean, that's an interesting claim, what, what you're supposed to make of it if it's true. I don't know if this guy's a fringe physicist or what, to be honest. I did a little bit of research into this. He wrote some paper on this, which you can get online, um, and it's on archive, and not, you don't know, but, but anyone can put some on archive. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I, I mean, and, and you don't hear people talking about it the way you hear people talking about inflation and other things, and, and that makes me think that maybe it's something that mainstream physicists aren't, aren't into. But, I, but to be honest, I have no idea. This is way above my... But, they, but anyway, my point was they were talking about it. Joe Rogan or, uh, was talking about yes. this idea. They were... But it, anyway... It's an interesting idea. Um, uh, to be honest with you, the the reason why I think it's interesting, if we could talk about, if you want to talk about this, I don't know, but the reason why I think it's interesting is because um, if you take, if you sort of look at physicists in the mainstream of the physics world, which I would take to be people like Brian Greene and Leonard Susskind, um, and and some other people. Uh, you know, the ones you hear a lot about. Like, you know, Leonard Susskind's famous for claiming that there's a zero-with law of physics, which is that information is not created or destroyed. Um, and that, 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 you know, I think as he famously puts it, if you burn a book um, and if you knew just the, the information contained in the cloud of smoke and embers, which was released from the burning of the book, and if you knew enough physics, then you would get all the information from the book itself because the information in the book is not destroyed, according to him, um, but it's just, you know, now scattered. It's harder to get at. Uh, it's easy to access in the book because it's all written down, but in the cloud of smoke, in the plume of smoke and dust embers, that same information is there, um, but just scattered around a bit more. Um, what, what do you yeah, think of that? It just sounds like Laplace to me. It sounds like Laplace, it, yeah. W yeah. So... And uh, and that depends on doesn't doesn't isn't that assuming some kind of like um, determinism? Um, no, that it's not. Well, because you that this is you know comments out of quantum mechanics. Um, look, it depends on your view about quantum mechanics, uh, whether it's determinant or not probably depends on what you mean by determinant. So if you have a many worlds interpret By the way, this is something else I will, I will we'll talk about in a second, so this, the Everett interpretation if you want. But So the, the idea here is simply that um, given the way the state, given the, the state the system is in now, you could work out what state it was in previously. Yeah, but um, I don't I don't see how that's consistent with um, quantum indeterminacy. Well, why isn't it consistent with the quantum indeterminacy? So here's so so uh, here's a, a particle configuration. I send you a text message um, yeah. that says yes if my um, Geiger counter clicks at exactly noon, and it says yeah. no otherwise. And, the, and whether the Geiger counter clicks at exactly noon or not depends on uh, this qu quantum indeterministic stuff, right? There's, there's yeah. 
Isn't that the basic gist of quantum indeterminacy? Whether some particle flies off of the uh, uranium nucleus at exactly that moment is right. not something that's caused or, or, or determined. Um, so, but there you are, you receive well, the text Well, it's not message. classically caused, yeah. So, I mean, look, that, um, it's not classically caused. It's not, it's de what's determined are the probabilities, maybe. And then if you have the many worlds interpretation, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is fully determinate. Um, because it says that in any given case, both of those things, or that, you know, uh, well, there are different ways of putting this, and, and I, you don't want to um, be sloppy and say that the world splits off because I think that's not quite the right way of talking about many worlds interpretation. Or that's one way of talking about many worlds interpretation. Um, to be honest with you, what I really think is that the uh, multiverse, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, and something like you know modal realism or something, all are kind of confused with each other are not, yeah, they're confused, conflated with each other, and um, they need to be more carefully distinguished. But I feel like at this point in time, it's not really the case that people are carefully distinguishing them. I mean, maybe some people are, but it, I mean, at least when people are talking about this stuff, they seem to be all lumped together. And that's it, because they're all clearly related, <laughs> but they're different. They're different. Um, so... It, so you're, if you're talking if you're talking about a quantum mechanical system, and if you have this kind of view about it, then um, the Schrödinger equation tells you how the system evolves. You can calculate what kinds of observations that you would make um, at any given time. So you give the initial setup of the system, and then you calculate forward from, uh, to some given time at which you want to make a measurement, and then the the, the Schrödinger equation gives you a prediction. Um, which is prob you know, probabilistic or stochastic is the right word. Um, um, and then uh, the observations confirm those predictions. So that's, to me, that's so, what the data of quantum mechanics is. The rest of it is interpreting what that data is, but the data is just that the Schrodinger equation is very good at computing things that we then go and uh, what, what observations we would make, and then those observations, uh, even though they're stochastic, um, it computes that we would observe this set of observations, and we do. That's the basic me, data let me, part. Let me pose a question in terms of cellular automata. You're, you're familiar with cellular automata, like, for example, Conway's Game of Life. Yeah. So um, one way of sorting different kinds of cellular automata is, is um, with respect to, for a given moment, so some configuration at the time, whether it has a uh, unique past and whether it has a unique future. So, for yeah. example, with Conway's um, famous automaton, the Game of Life, for a given uh, game state configuration, there's only one future. The next moment in time has to be this one particular way, and it can't be any other way. However... It's yeah. not reversible in the sense that um, it has a unique past. So there's multiple different so there's different configurations that will give rise to that given um, configuration. That's so, right, but there's no given configuration which can't be traced back to some initial starting point. So say that, that again? Information, it's reversible in the sense that there's no given configuration which uh, can't be traced back 
to some initial configuration. So are you, talking about, are you talking about the game of life? Yeah. Or in, you know, I mean, no, this is more of a basic physics no, point. But no, but the, as far as what you're saying about the game of life is incorrect. If uh, if I just showed you if if I showed you if you knew the, you know the rules the rules of the game of life are very simple. And if I if I gave you a uh, configuration at a time, yeah. you couldn't you couldn't figure out what the previous moment was. There's there's multiple previous moments that could be, and you can't read that off. Even though you have got perfect knowledge of what the present is and uh -huh. what the laws of physics are for the game of life, you can't figure out what the what the previous event was. There's multiple previous events, and that's been proved. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's been established. Yes. Yeah. Other there's what's, other what's cellular. The, what's the proof? Um, you, I can't do it right now. Like write out the proof. But well, why can't you is, give me the gist of it? I don't. I don't understand why this is the case. I mean, maybe it, it's this uh, epistemic limit that what you're saying is that we can't trace it back. But I, I, I'm having a hard time understanding why it's the case that if you knew everything about the setup. Um, the, and, and including the physics of the thing that's implementing it, why you couldn't trace it back to a unique state. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be a, a really clear example, but there's the gist of it is that given, and I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of repeating myself now, but given the rules, there's right. um, so I mean uh, I don't, there's but maybe multiple so are, things it, that it, will lead to the same thing. Um, Okay, but so is what you're saying that the game of life refutes the physicist Leonard Susskind? That's what you're saying? <laughs> that seems crazy to me. No, I'm just I'm trying to pose a question. Okay. There's, there's, I'm saying there's these different kinds of cellular automata. Some of them are reversible and some of them aren't. Uh-huh. And um, uh, yeah, even, so then so even though they're all determined true, they're, then, Okay, so let if that's true then the claim that I was making earlier was that the cellular automaton, which correspond or which capture the way things work in the physical world, have to be reversible. And non-reversible ones aren't candidates for like physical worldness. Yeah, and so, um, and I'm wondering. So, and by the way, so just because something's deterministic, it doesn't mean it's reversible. The game of life is deterministic in the sense that for any given state, there's only one future. Right. It's future is and just fully because, and that was the, I was making the opposite point. Just because something is not deterministic or something in, so is stochastic doesn't mean it's uh, not reversible. So you could have uh, reversible systems that are stochastic. Um, you know that. that so I, I guess what this is the debate between Susskind and, and Hawking's. This is the black the information paradox. Maybe the black hole paradox is really what. We're yeah. talking about. So that the so. If the idea is that you could burn a book and the information in the book is somehow distributed in the cloud of smoke that results, and you could work your way back using the laws of physics from that cloud of smoke back to the information that was in the book, um, uh, uh, you know, some people say, well, "What happens when you throw the book in a black hole?" Because you know, information behind that goes behind the event horizon is supposed to be unrecoverable um, um, from us because once it once it goes behind there that we can't observe it anymore and so therefore that information which seems like it would be truly lost. Uh, um, that's one way of putting what the kind of paradox was in its original um, formulation. And I think Stephen Hawking is the one who, you know, who talked about this stuff and, and wrote about this and posed this challenge. 
Um, but I, I think in the, the answer that came out of this, um, and again, this again is stuff I barely understand, but I've read about it and like to understand it more. But the, what came out of this, once you think about quantum mechanics and the uncertainty principle and some of the things that sort of we think we know about quantum mechanics, um, you know, uh, one way of putting the weirdness of the uncertainty principle is that when you, t when you measure something and you find out where it's located, the next time you measure it, there's a non-zero chance it could be located anywhere. And that includes inside a black hole. So yeah. once you sort of appreciate that point, um, you realize uh, black holes aren't these curtains which nothing ever comes out of. They have to, Stuff has to be able to go into and out of a black hole if there's a non-zero chance that will that will that that this thing will end up inside the black hole, and conversely, that something inside the like an electron um, that's in the black hole will there's a non-zero chance that it should be found somewhere else outside, you know, in the in the universe. Um, now that's what's called Hawking radiation, in in, uh, in I guess in in the in the literature, the Hawking radiation of a black hole. And this is a highly theoretical mathematical posit, so it's not something that's been empirically empirically confirmed or tested. Um, but I think, I mean, as far as I understand this stuff, I think that it's uh, something that people feel could be true. Um, so the Hawking radiation is, this, is the idea that uh, um, information that's taken up into the black hole is slowly leaked out via the quantum mechanical effects so that the book gets sucked in and then maybe one electron of the book shows up um, in Alpha Centauri in a thousand years, and then another electron of the book shows up in the um, you know uh, the local group, the next thing over, the what whatever it is, Orion's Belt or something. I mean, whatever you know. So bit by bit, the particles come out, and if you waited long enough, you could collect them and recreate the information that was behind the book, that was that fell behind the event horizon. Um, so 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 I mean the the that's a way of solving this kind of problem. You wait long enough, you recover the information. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean, yeah, you don't know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the logic of the argument is pretty solid, whether it's empirically true. I mean... Um, well, you know, do you know about the... Uh, there's this nearby research about the physics of information. People have figured out things like what's the minimal amount of energy that you have to the minimal amount of energy it takes to like, for example, record one bit of information or or read one bit of information. Right. Are you familiar with any of this stuff? No. The, well, I the gist of it is Godfrey's work on the evolution of memory, which touches on some of this slightly, but I don't think it's what you're exactly talking about, right? Or I don't know. This is, um, it's kind of, you know, one way of illustrating the, this, the, some of this research is in terms of um, a paradox people have posed concerning the Laplacian vision of, of, of physics and its consistency with uh, thermodynamics. Yeah. So there's this little uh, uh, paradox about Maxwell's demon and um, two containers. Do you know about this? You've got two. I don't know. Huh? I don't know about it. So you've got two containers. One of them is filled with a gas, 
and the other one is a vacuum. And they're connected by a tube, and there's a valve. And um, Maxwell's demon is hanging out near the valve, and he is able to open it or close it. And what he does is he just watches for um, a molecule of gas. Yeah. Whenever a molecule of gas comes from uh, comes near the valve from the full container, he uh, opens he opens the valve and lets it fly on by into the previously empty container. But if a, if the if the molecule is coming uh, over from the the so-called empty you know the previously empty container, he won't let it pass. And okay. so what he does. <laughs> He doesn't actually do anything to the molecules. He just opens the door when they come by, and right. um, and so eventually, um, all he's able he's able to wind up with all the molecules being uh, over in the the second container. Once once the se the second container is filled up, it's now pressurized. He can he can let that out to drive an engine. So, um, uh -huh. what's, what's next so is wait, uh, so basically he's got perpetual motion. So when he opens the door, none of the particles in there come back out? That's right. Why? Because he's got Laplacian knowledge. He, he, right? knowledge. He, he closes, whenever a molecule comes near the valve, if it's coming from the, the other direction, he closes the valve. Uh-huh. He only opens the valve if the molecule is coming from uh, his right. I wonder if, if that's physically possible to do that. But all right, let's that's, that's it is. the question: Is that physically possible? And yeah. once you start thinking about it, uh, you've got to think about like how would he know? The only way he would know where uh, the molecules are is if yeah. he is having some kind of causal interaction with him. With, right. with the molecules, right? So, for example, if he's seeing the molecules, a photon has to bounce off of them to come into his eyes. But that's going to that's going to involve an energy exchange. And so, yeah. um, the initial paradox is: it looks like, unless you take into account the actual energy expenditures for gaining information, it looks like he could build a perpetual motion machine. It looks like he can overcome the laws of thermodynamics. Um, but then, once you start thinking about exactly like the energy requirements on acquiring a bit of information, you realize that the laws of thermodynamics stand after all, and he can't create an, uh, a perpetual motion m machine out of this this setup. And so, people uh, kind of have worked this out in a lot more detail than just this kind of intuitive. Yeah, I've never uh, heard of this before. And uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of really cool stuff. And if you, if anyone's interested, probably the best thing to Google is just the phrase "the physics of information." And so there are yeah, people. What's, that the, what's the? So why do we care about it, though? Uh, so one thing that you might, I mean, to go back to what you were saying about the, uh, if you burn a book and you can recover all the information, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, with this idea about the the physical requirements. Of gaining information, whether it's true, like that within the universe, that any arbitrary amount of information can be recovered. Uh -huh. So it might. So so say say for example, um, you wanted to know all of the um, 
the, pos the positions of the particles in Jupiter. Yeah. That's going to cost you. You're going to have to burn some energy in order to gain that information. Where are you going to yeah. get the energy? So maybe you go and you dismantle Mars and Venus and, <laughs> and throw them into your fusion reactor, and that will, that will power up the machines that you need to, to gather the information about Jupiter. So um, to, get, to get information about any particular chunk of the universe, you're going to need to get energy um, from somewhere else in the universe. And if you think about this in terms of thermodynamics, um, in, in order to create, like one way of thinking about getting information is you're creating a, um, a, a, a highly organized structure. You're, you're, you're creating a system that has uh, locally low entropy. And um, in order to create that local low entropy, you have to increase the entropy in some other part of the, of the universe. Right. So if you, if you think, for example, about uh, life on, on Earth. Um, you think that's necessary to get information or just accidentally the way we get information? I'm saying, yeah, I think it's necessary. If, uh, I'm assuming this stuff about the, the physics of information that I've waved my hands at concerning, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just assuming that that's true. So you're uh, saying if there were a god as traditionally conceived, it could have no information? Yeah, like something that doesn't, it doesn't causally interact. Right, that uh, God has non-causal knowledge. You know, uh, just direct acquaintance. What about just acquaintance? I'm assuming that's bullshit too. You're assuming that's bullshit. Okay, so all knowledge has to, I mean, yeah, so there has to be some, I mean, you could have got this just from quantum mechanics, you think, you know, there has to be some minimal of, uh, um, amount that the probe you're using, some minimal amount of energy that the photon has that you're using to measure something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, one way you, you, so one way you can think, right, if you're thinking about position and momentum mm -hmm. of, a, of a particle, if you want to learn the position, you can, you can learn that to some arbitrary degree of precision, but you're going to sacrifice uh, knowledge of momentum and vice versa. Right, right. Exactly, and, but, and that's, so this, uh, this, um, this is the way I see, because I, you, you know, I don't know the Laplacian thing. Until I wish I knew more about thermodynamics, the class, like the way it, uh, it came to be. I, I know some of it, but I'm not as not, much as I, I wish that I did. I know more about electromagnetism and the history of how that evolved, um, and I don't even really know that much about that. So I mean, that whole area of history of science to me is really interesting. I wish I could devote more time to it. So, but anyway, um, so this reminds me, you know, this entanglement in quantum mechanics. Um, and what sometimes you in the experimental literature people call quantum tunneling, tunneling are kind of related in an interesting way in, in this sense. So um, uh, quantum tunneling is this thing that I just referred to earlier, namely that you could have an electron in a closed box and it could, it could outsmart Laplace's demon because it could go through the door when the door was closed. <laughs> um, that's quantum tunneling. And I, the reason that's why I hate electrons. <laughs> it turns out it's not electrons, though. It's all matter. It's, it's, not, it's a basic what? feature of the quantum world. Fuck it. <laughs> it's not a yeah, photons, electrons. Um, what a bunch it, of jerks. Uh, matter, it has wave-like properties, um, and that's, I think, something which... If you take quantum me mechanics seriously at all, 
you have to just accept that what we've learned is that, uh, um, well, I don't know if you just have to accept it because you, there's bombing interpretations. You know, these. I, I, it's easy for me to get distracted in this territory because everything is everything is shiny and interesting to me. I'm like, oh, look at that, look at this. But uh, <laughs> the bombing interpretation is that there are these classically conceived particles whose behavior is guided by the Schrodinger equation. Um, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. It's guided by a pilot equation, which itself in turn is guided by the Schrodinger equation. Ooh, fancy. Basically, you just define a function which is related to the um, to the way the Schrodinger equation relates the Hamiltonian of a certain thing to where it's at the energy level or whatever. So that's all formal stuff. And then you can still think of these things as basically little billiard balls. So, you know, bombing, I, I'm, um, this is what Marcus Arvin was talking about in the comments. And when we have him on, we can talk more about this because he yeah. claims it's been experimentally disconfirmed. And, you know, maybe that's true, you know. Um, so anyway, it's 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 uh, it's wrong to say that we know this. When when you're talking about quantum mechanics, there are you know things that people feel confident saying amongst their peers, and then the things that you know are wild speculation. <laughs> and I take it we're here in the business of wild speculation. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I don't think the bombing interpretation is taken very serious by physicists. Who knows? But so in mainstream physics, what you find is that. People talk about matter having wave-like properties. Um, that that even the elements of matter, like protons um, and quarks, uh, dis display wave-like properties. Now, whether they don't call them waves, they say display wave-like properties, and that's a you know sleight of hand way of being really neutral about what thing under underneath we're really talking about. What we know is that you know, and this all starts from the photoelectric effect way back when. We know that photons act like particles. They have momentum on certain occasions. We know that they act like waves on other occasions. They display the interference pattern. And that's true with protons, um, and et cetera. So I think that what, what, we, what we have is evidence that the traditional category of matter versus, I mean, excuse me, particle versus wave is just kind of, you know, you can save it if you want, all a bomb in that interpretation, but uh, then it's an experimental question, you know. And then are adjusting the web of belief or whatever. But 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 my point though is that what we have, what's really strongly what we have evidence for is that there's this kind of tunneling, um, and it happens in with matter. And again, it follows out of the uncertainty principle from that way of thinking about it. If you measure the location of this thing with a very um, uh, with a very precise uh, amount of knowledge to a precise degree, then you don't know its velocity anymore. Um, right. In other words, you don't know which direction it's heading. Now, why is that important? Well, because the next time you measure its location, it could be anywhere. <laughs> it could be on Alpha Centauri. It could be in the back of your neck. Um, so if you knew its velocity, it would rule out certain places where you would be likely to find it next. So you can't know that. Um, that's why right. that the uncertainty relationships make sense given the other things, the, the stochastic nature of these kinds of properties. Well, let's go back to the earlier thing we were talking about. Oh, by the way, we should take a break. Oh, and, break, right. Uh, you and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding.
Huh. Plan A taught you the five-point palm exploding heart technique. Of course he did. <laughs> not to well, say that I didn't enjoy I didn't enjoy the movie though. Uh, but it remind me of but the reason I brought it up was not to like get all deep and introspective, but just to remember the five-point palm exploding heart trick. Which is like yes. the argumentative, the uh, kung fu equivalent of the argument that blows up the head of your opponent. <laughs> yeah, um, we we should uh, we should set aside an episode where we try to blow each other's heads up. Okay. <laughs> you know, like in celebration of our tenth episode, we could like try to blow each other's heads up by giving the best arguments against everything that you think is silly. <laughs> Vice versa. By the way, I, I tried to look you up. I, oh, I'm setting the alarm for uh, so we know when it's 10:30. Uh, I tried to look you up on the Phil <laughs> Papers survey. Uh huh. Because I thought it would be an interesting blog post for the Space Time Mind blog. So uh huh. My info's private. Yeah. What the fuck, man? What are you afraid of? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I just never clicked that thing that said made it public. <laughs> would you be willing to? Um, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Uh, I'm not sure. I might have changed my mind. I, I'm really uncomfortable with those kinds of questions. I mean, some of the questions I think were worded badly, and yep. um, some of the questions I don't really have firm commitments on, but I picked what I thought was most likely, which I don't think represents um, what I really think, maybe. I think I have more nuanced views. I don't know. I don't. And then the problem is that data gets cited, and so yep. there are already every paper is like, oh, well, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I want to be careful here because I do think those kinds of surveys are important. That's why I took the survey. I did take it. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, I was. I felt honored to have my data included in the survey, even though you know, who am I? I'm a no one. So I, I was happy to volunteer that information and contribute. You know, my. And it, it turns out, you know, I was very bad at this because you know, on a side note, I remember. I I bet Chalmers. I bet David. Uh, I bet Dave that. Um, there would be less duelists responses than there were. We we like officially bet on it, and I I thought it'd be like a minority view, less than five percent. I forget what my actual number was, and he said no, no, it's like closer to um, uh, above ten percent. I forget what our actual bet was, but we bet on it, and I lost. <laughs> there are more duelists than I thought, uh, but then you know I yeah I don't know. Um, are there really, or do people? Are people just really not even super clear of what these options are? Because you know, a lot of times I find in my discussions of these things that people are really against zombies, or they think it's obvious that they can conceive of zombies, um, physical duplicates of me that lack consciousness, uh, and then they say, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm just imagining me when I'm drunk and passed out, or something like that." And I, and it's like, well, that's not exactly what you're supposed to be imagining. So when you really get super clear about what's at issue, people's intuitions become different. So um, you know, and you can't control for that kind of stuff in the uh, in the survey. Although they're alleged experts, you know, but look at me. Am I an expert? I'm just, you know, I'm just schmo with a bunch of intuitions. So if you get a bunch of us together, then you, you know, I don't know. It, it would be better to like, you know, define, clear up this stuff and define terms and agree. So that I would take that kind of data more interest, more be more interesting. But, and I don't, you know, and I also don't want to en encourage the idea that I belong to a camp <laughs> or that I'm a member of a group. Or that I officially support a view, or that you can call me a such and such theorist. I want to deny all that stuff. I'm, I'm not any of those things. Um, there you are. And you know I'm not. What I've all I'm committed to one thing and one thing only, and that's this. Um, 
that the claim that the mind simply is the brain is not contradictory and it hasn't been ruled out by science and there are no good a priori arguments against it. So that's what I'm committed to, a negative thesis, that something has not been disproved and that so therefore it's interesting. I, I bet you're committed to other things besides. No, read my papers. <laughs> Aren't you, you're committed, you think consciousness exists, right? Um, well, I mean, come on. Aren't you but committed that's not to a that? Commitment. That's obvious. Yeah, it's a commitment. You're yeah, committed. that is a commitment. No, you're right. That is a commitment. But uh, and and you're right. So uh, I'm committed to consciousness existing and that it's not contradictory. That it exists and really exists in the brain. That's what I'm committed to. And there's ethical. And all stuff of my here. work has been devoted merely to that negative claim. I've never said, never once have I ever written down the words, "I believe that physicalism is true." Never. What I've said is, it's not stupid. For me to think that it could be true, <laughs> that's it. And furthermore, all the reasons that people cite against it, you can debunk. Um, so uh, now you know. So I'm not a dogmatist. I'm not someone. I'm not someone who says, "Look, I know physicalism is true, therefore I debunk all the arguments." What I what I say merely is that it's not contradictory that it's true, um, and slightly more cautiously could actually turn out to be the case. <laughs> Uh, but I don't, you know, I'm much more cautious than a poll suggests, which is why yeah, I keep that why are you information. So cautious? What? Why are you so cautious? Because I don't think I know the answers to these questions, <laughs> and I think that people who think they know the answers to these questions are annoying, and I wish that they would be more cautious. <laughs> That's why. You know, I mean, you know, I, I've said this before. Knowledge is poo-poo. We don't know shit. Um, I take the kind of dog the lesson from the dogmatism paradox to be that knowledge cl knowledge claims um, it close off inquiry because Wait, what's it, the, it, sorry what's the dogmatism paradox oh this is a, uh, something from Kripke um, so you know he says and it, it's it's it the, it's a puzzle the puzzle is this in some cases we think that no we have knowledge and since we know that thing we're entitled to disregard evidence against it because we already know it. Um, and in some, and so that's the basic idea is that knowledge, if you really know something, then it's kind of irrational to consider evidence against it because you know that it's not the case. Now, uh, so that's just a basic kind of statement of, of something. And then the puzzle arises when you realize, well, you know, that's dogmatism. I know this, therefore I ignore that evidence. And Kripke says that, gee, that generally seems like it should be bad, but there are some cases where it seems kind of good. And he gives the example probably that you would endorse, um, uh, which is astrology. He says, look, you know, I know that astrology is bullshit. And therefore, if someone were to come to me and say, oh, but look, there's this evidence which suggests astrology isn't bullshit, I, Kripke, would say, I ignore your evidence and I won't even consider it because I already know that it's bullshit. Therefore, there cannot be evidence for something which is false or that I should take seriously anyway because the thing is false. Therefore, I just disregard your evidence. And so the puzzle is this. Sometimes it's the dogmatist response seems legitimate and warranted like in the astrology case, but in other cases it doesn't. And obviously the most um, obvious case to my mind where it's not warranted is in the case of religion. Um, and you find people like this like, you know, uh, um, I, you know, I, I don't want to like be mean to anyone, but there's a philosopher named Hans Halverson. I don't know if you know Hans or not. I've no. met him. He's an extremely nice guy, very smart, a philosophy of physics, but also a Christian. 
Um, and you get the feeling from talking to him that he, his faith in God is just central, and he, he questions it and he wrestles with it. I think he's an honest person, and he, you know, he describes himself as having doubts. You know, he came to LaGuardia and gave a talk, and he's a very, very nice guy and super smart, knows about physics, actually takes physics seriously. Um, but you get the feeling that he thinks of his job as looking at arguments against Christian beliefs and trying to find out what's wrong with them because he sort of has this belief in God prior. So that's dogmatism in kind of, I would say, a bad sense because you get the feeling that there's nothing that would ever convince him that he's wrong. Um, even though he's super smart, he's always going to come up with a way to say, you know, um, yeah, uh, to reconcile these things. And that's because he puts his, his belief in God sort of in a special privileged place um, and so discounts evidence against that or looks to debunk it or is immune to it in some sense. Um, and, and maybe that's wrong, and it would be great to get hands on here to hear, uh, excuse me, get not get hands on, but to get hands Halverson on this show. Uh, <laughs> to get hands on and get hands on with hands on. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it would be great to get him on and talk to him because he's someone who's very serious and also a, a true thinker, not someone, I mean, you know, get the feeling he's really searching and, and thinking. Um, so, and I, I like that wherever you find that in a person. Uh, so anyway, my point is here are two examples of, someone, of, of a kind of person and if it's not specifically hands, then someone like him who's not not like him, but someone who says, "Look, my belief in God is, you know, like Alvin Plantinga. So my belief in God is central, and I take no evidence against it seriously, yeah. and I debunk it." So in the astrology, this is again just kind of paraphrasing Kripke. In the astrology case, yeah. it seems like that's good. We should ignore the evidence. In the religious case, we say, "What is this guy doing? He should take the evidence more seriously." Um, so what's the difference, uh, and how do we know the difference, and when, when, when do you say, when is it good to take this dogmatist approach, and when is it bad to take this dogmatist approach? So that's the basic paradox. What, so, so what would be your answer to this? I'm not super, I'm not super familiar with the paradox, like I'm learning about it now. So what's your gut reaction then? I mean, my well, well, tell me what you think of this. I'm, in, I'm inclined with a, a, a lot of these sorts of things to say, I am a knowledge eliminativist. I like belief. I like truth. I yeah. like evidence. I like explanation. But right. knowledge, like saying like I know this or 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 he knows that. Fuck that. Fuck knowledge. Not like yeah. uh, like the famous T-shirt. Knowledge is knowledge poo -poo. is poo poo. Let's say it together. Knowledge is poo poo. Knowledge is poo -poo. It's poo poo. Um, <laughs> So you know what I, I this is another one of those reinventing of the wheels and my I feel like my life is a series of reinvention of, of the wheel so I, I once thought I got very proud of myself and I was like oh you know what here's a great argument against knowledge um, you take someone who knows that p and you take someone who believes that p but p is true and it does the same exact thing therefore knowledge is kind of useless it's not knowing that p that does any work. It's like just believing that P and it turning out to be true. So it's true belief that does all the work. Knowledge, who cares? And then yeah. I found I, I have an epistemologist friend. I'm sort of ashamed to admit it, but I do. Um, and I sort of I was like you know all like hey let's check out my great new idea. And he was like oh yeah you know that's called the swamping problem. We, we epistemologists already know about that. <laughs> and I was like shit. <laughs> but but I so wait, 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 wait. Uh, I'm having this, the same reaction that you're describing. It's, crap. I thought I thought I had a cool thing. 
So what, what's it called, the swamping problem? The swamping problem, exactly. I don't know why it's called the swamping problem, but that's the, what he told me that it's called. And I the, looked problem is, the problem is trying to figure out what, what knowledge might be good for. What it adds to be. merely having true belief. How, why knowledge is, is better than merely having true belief or something, and how, why, there, why it's not having, it being knowledge is important and it matters. Um, that's the, explaining that is the swamping problem, and epistemologists think they have answers to those questions. You wow. know, that, I once also I had an epistemologist friend that one time I, he said, what's your fucking beef with epistemology because I'm always bagging on it. And I said, uh, paraphrasing myself, I said, I, you know, I, I feel like the problem is that they think that there's such a thing as knowledge, <laughs> and, they, and then they try to explain what it is, but um, it, it isn't the question like, do we have any knowledge? And, and um, you know, probably the answer to that is no. And then he accused me of thinking that if you know that P, you have to know that you know that P and that people are over that nowadays. And I was like, well, I'm not sure if that's exactly what I'm um, trying to get at here. But uh, I do feel like part of it is this thing we were talking about last time. And by the way, since we're bringing up things we were talking about last time, I would like to clarify since I saw that clip of myself saying some things um, that I would, and I wasn't, and I'm not, I'm not retracting anything. I want to double down. Um, I just wasn't clear in what I was saying. So I was making a scattered kind of point. Here's the point I was trying to make, uh, which is that, so you get these people like Dawkins and these people like Lawrence Krauss and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and they say, fuck philosophy, and then all the philosophers get all huffy-puffy. And so I was defending them, sort of saying, fuck philosophy. Like, remember, I have a blog called Philosophy Sucks. That's not an accident. And so um, I was saying, you know, yay science and so forth and so on. Uh, and I also said that the reason why I say fuck philosophy along with them is because by philosophy, by that use of that term, we mean something um, which isn't all philosophy. I think this is the mistake that people like the Richard Feynman and these guys that they make, and also everyone in this group. You know, By philosophy, they identify this thing that I was talking about with Russell and so forth, this idea that they're unanswerable questions that's left over after the answerable questions have become a science because they figured out how to operationalize the various definitions or to mathematize or formalize the various thing and now they're doing science on it. Um, and so when they say fuck philosophy, they mean fuck armchair disconnected from science philosophy and that's what philosophy was for a while. That's what people think of when they think of philosophy. But that's a mistake. That's not what philosophy, that's one kind of philosophy. Um, whereas there's another kind of philosophy, the kind that you and I are interested in, um, the kind that's empirically informed and sees its job as importantly a part of what science's job is. Uh, and I don't say fuck that kind of philosophy. I say that that you need that in order to do science, and that maybe in the right way of thinking about it, it is part of the sciences. So that philosophy is part of cognitive science, and you say it is science itself. Um, and I say, well, I'm not sure if I go that far, but it's definitely part of the sciences. But it's not the same thing as that other stuff uh, which people have traditionally associated with philosophy. And, and that is something I traditionally associate with epistemology, like questions about Gettier, questions about skepticism, um, and uh, use of intuitions as evident. You know, if you don't have these, a lot of table pounding about, don't you just see the intuition? Like, don't you, and that, uh, you know, I, when you read, Anyway, anyway, I'm going off and on, but anyway, so that's what yeah. I wanted to correct about that um, is that uh, it's philosophy, empirically informed philosophy is a kind of philosophy which is importantly distinct from this other stuff. And so the reason I don't like a pit, so that's what I was saying. Someone asked me, what's your beef with epistemology? And I sort of think that it's, the reason is it's the epitome of this kind of old school thing that I don't like.
Yeah, you know, dude, you're pissing me off because you're you're too interesting <laughs> and you say too many interesting things. Why? What happened? I'm trying to take notes. <laughs> well, I want I want to go back to what we were talking about about knowledge. Yeah, this one thing. Also, like now, I also want to talk about the relationship between science and philosophy. You motherfucker. Because I was blowing up my brain. We have to talk about it because we, I, I was re-listening to our, that episode and I realized we didn't really talk about the two big test cases, uh, test cases um, in philosophy, which are happening right now. And it's so I was like, why did we not talk about? It? So the one test case is experimental philosophy, which is kind of trying to do what I was saying psychology should have done to begin with, which is stay in the philosophy department, but turn to empirical methods. Yeah. Um, so, and I said, if, if psychology had done that, that philosophy would be more respected now. Um, and you may remember that I'm kind of critical of XFI and that my criticism of it yeah. was not that it's bad philosophy, but was that it's bad science at this point in time. Um, and I still, I still think that a lot of it still is bad science. Uh, you know, this is kind of, I mean, I'm spiraling off on a different thing. I don't want to get caught. Yeah, what's the second the other, thing? You said the, other case, the other test case was the, the Chalmers program in philosophy of mind, because I was listening to this podcast um, with Philip Goff, uh, Philosophy Now. I don't know if you know that if you saw this or not, but on Philosophy Now. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet. I listened to it, um, and so you know he was running through his line, and I like Philip, and I want to have him. I want to talk to him someday on this show because he yeah, owes me, me too. An ex he owes me an explanation about Shambies and you know so forth, and he said he someday he'll give me a, an a said explanation. But anyway, his his kind of point was that. Uh, and this is basically a Chalmers line, and I remember Dave one time called me up on this in person. I was talking about his view to someone right next to me, and I said, oh, well, Dave thinks that consciousness can't be explained by science. And he said, no, 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 can't be explained by empirical science. And I said, yeah, well, what else is there? And, and then I realized my mistake, if it is a mistake, um, was that by science, they want to broaden the definition of science to include first-person data about non-physical conscious private events um, so that the science of consciousness for, for those guys, for Goff and for Chalmers and that whole group of people, um, science has to, so they would accuse us of having an overly narrow view of science as only including the empirical sciences, um, whereas a true science of consciousness for them has to be uh, something that includes first-person data, which is private and not accessible by third-person means, according to them. Of course, I don't, you know, uh, um, I'm not saying I endorse this or that I don't, but, so, but the, here are two test cases. One, where philosophers are saying we should be science too, we're doing science of consciousness, and then they talk about dualism and panpsychism and shit. <laughs> and then the yeah. other test case where they're saying, look, we're doing philosophy, but it's experimental philosophy, and we're, you know, um, uh, so I don't know. Though I think those are two interesting cases about what counts as a science that we didn't even broach last time. Yeah, there's a bunch we didn't broach. We didn't broach like why I'm a philosopher. Yeah, you aren't. You're a scientist. You said. I thought. Well, I mean, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> but so, what? So, what do you think of XFI? Is it science? Um, is it doing what psychology did? Is it uh, not doing what psychology did? Is I recently had a conversion. I used to be anti XFI. Uh huh. And um, and then a, a switch went off in my head, and I'm not exactly sure what made the switch flip. Okay, you learned about XFI, maybe. <laughs> Well, I've got a couple theories. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but one theory is I've just been hanging out with a, a, enough of them, enough of the X fires, and right. that it was this like non-rational thing, just some social bullshit. 
you, you know, you, if you if you hang out with a bunch of duelists, eventually you turn into a duelist. If no, you, I hang out with duelists all the time. I'm not turning into a duelist. <laughs> um. Well, I also hang out with higher order thought theorists. I'm not a higher order thought theorist. Yeah, I also you hang out. are. No, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. No. In fact, I'm even more. I'm even more cautious about higher order thought theory. The only thing I've ever said in print about higher order thought theory is that it's not obviously absurd. That's as far as I'll go. That that's as far as you ever go. That's exactly you, right. That's pretty far. That's, um, that's yeah. It's going all the way for me. So so. My current view on XFi is that the um, there's two parts to it. One is the the kind of the theory, and the other is the method. I think the 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 the, the gist of the theory has got to be correct. What's that, the gist of the theory? That um, our uh, that the philosophy rests on a, a, a whole bunch of Intuitions, and then the int the intuitions are are variable. Um, yeah, but you know, I was just watching this philosophy TV episode um, with uh, Jennifer Nagel, uh, and uh, I haven't watched all that yet. I've seen some of it. All about this issue. I think she made some very excellent points, which directly address what you're saying. And, and the person she was talking to backs down actually. Um, and I think the X5P. He even says himself, X5 people are becoming more reasonable with this respect. I don't think. That they think of, or that he thinks of what they're doing, or that they should be doing, as um, uh, debunking the use of intuitions. I think they're trying to understand how intuition should be used, rather than saying they shouldn't be used at all. Yeah, but um, and, and, yeah, and I agree because I think that what intuitions are good for is figuring out what the theoretical implications of a given set of assumptions are. Which is what you know. That's perfect. That's a perfectly good use for them. Whether they show you what's true, that's where I would dispute. Um, but you I would know, dispute that too, and I think that that's part of um, at least what what I I see as the the content of of XFi. Of, of right, course, so this is XFi people don't all agree on the, uh, the. There's theoretical differences between them, but the gist of it. Um, Let me throw this at you, Pete, and see how you respond to it, because I just want to get your take on it real fast. So yeah. here's Jennifer Nagel's. Uh, basically, basically her argument. Um, she says, look, you know, empirical science has revealed that people's the color discriminatory abilities slightly vary. Um, so that if you go around and ask people to discriminate between various colors, they give you slightly different answers. You know, which one's the true blue? You know, this is, you know, right. a, a discovery of, of psychophysics that people disagree. Within a subject, you get very high agreement, but between subjects, you get slight disagreement. Um, so you find out there's there's variation there in perceptual um, judgments. What do you infer from that? Do you infer that therefore perceptual perceptions are totally unreliable? Uh, because if not, if not, her point is well, then finding out that there are variations in people's intuitions shouldn't similarly lead us to think that intuitions are totally unreliable. So I thought that was an interesting point she made. I wonder, and I was uh, thinking about I don't it this think morning. I'm the right reaction. I'm I'm inclined. It, it I'm I'm kind you're of. You're gonna a, say, oh, you're gonna do myth I'm of color, color sensations. <laughs> I'm a color subjectivist, and uh, uh, and I think one of the best arguments for it is that it's it's hard to uh, get agreement. Um, but 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 step, color subjectivism is not the same as saying that when you have a color experience, you don't thereby have good reason to believe that you know presented with something of a certain sort. Like that, if you experience the apple as green, that gives you good reason to think that you know you're seeing something which you know is, 
has certain physical properties, maybe spectral reflectance or something, or um, or no, you're going to disagree with that even, or that there is something out there which is causing it. I mean, you know, I, I think this connects up to some stuff that Chalmers says about the the Frigean 2D content of experience that he says oh our experiences are presented to us as sort of having typical or canonical causes. Do you don't think that's true? No. That when you experience the apple, you don't sort of have feel as though the experience is presented to you as though it's being caused by an apple. That the color seems like it's part part of the apple's surface, and that the apple surface is causally responsible for your. You don't. I mean, that's not how it is. Science maybe reveals that, but that's how it is an experience, right? Or you. I mean, you disagree with that? We, I think that's something we believe. I don't. I don't think that's. I think we're getting way off. <laughs> Get away off. Yeah, uh, are we gonna talk about? You got to leave in six minutes. Are we gonna talk about quantum mechanics again? We never finished. I want, I want to know about the. Um, God damn it! Information paradox. We're, we're just gonna have to. We're gonna have to have uh, keep on having these discussions until we finally talked about everything. Well, again, I mean, just I wanted to finish that the, the, the bit about the quantum tunneling and the. Okay, so I have a question for you. The, yeah. the, uh, and, and it goes like this. So, um, so forget about burning a book. Yeah, <laughs> just focus on a single particle. So there's a so there's a particle right here, and uh, I I now uh, I I know its momentum. I've measured its momentum. Okay. I can't recover what its um how, what its momentum was. Uh, or its or what its position was uh, five seconds ago, right? Like, like uh, is, yeah, it, you, isn't there information? Like, part of recover the, the stochastic probabilities. Uh, but there's a bunch of stuff about its past that I can't know, right? You can. Uh, well, what? Well, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, okay. Let's go back to the book then, right? The, so the a part of this, of part book. of this, you burn is, the book. Yeah. You burn the book. Now you've got a bunch of ash and smoke particles. Uh -huh. um, are you going to be able to? How are you going to able, be able to reconstruct and figure out whether that was the Moby Dick that got burned as opposed to uh, Tale of Two Cities? Well, in, in order I to mean, know whether it was Moby Dick versus Tale of Two Cities, you're going to have to know the precise positions of all those. Uh, of those particles at some Yeah, the idea moment. is supposed to be that you can you, you can determine whether it was Moby Dick or the other book. You know, Stephen Hawking even said he conceded this bet to uh, Susskind and said that he owed him a book of baseball stats, but maybe he said, um, or he was going to burn it and give him a pile of ashes or something like that, but he gave him a book because it was more, the content was more easily accessible. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the idea is supposed to be that you. Uh, so I mean, part of this is what do you mean by a particle? I mean, I don't know. We're we're never going to have enough time to ever talk about all this stuff, which is why we must always do this. Um, and yeah. we should get people. We should get people that get that know more about this than I than I do because my knowledge is extremely limited and amateurish. So I would love to talk to someone who really knew about this stuff. And um, I know less than you do. And, and learn about it. Uh, well, okay. Um, and I did talk. I did. I talked to Leonard Susskind and, and asked him to come on. And he said he was really busy. Um, he said he was swamped, actually. So, uh, but he didn't rule it out. He did not say definitively no. 
he said, I'm really busy right now, so I will bother him in the future because uh, he has lots yeah. of interesting things to say about this. Um, but so what does it mean? So I don't know. Uh, a particle is, is just some, I mean, if you think of it as just an, a bit of information, so it can be, you know, spin up or spin down. Um, it can have, an electron can either have um, uh, this or that of its range. It could be a positron or an electron, a right. negative or a positive charge. So that's a bit of information. That's one bit of information. Um, and uh, the, I often get the feeling that when physicists talk about this, that's what they think is the primary unit of physics, is those bits of information, um, which specify... Uh, the way that the fundamental um, uh, properties are uh, are you so you have one bit for every way that these that these properties are that's what a property is for them just this bit of information um, so whether so whether it's the same electron uh, from that goes into the black hole or comes out of the black hole is a, a bit of a weird question for them because it's really the same the, the question for them is whether you get the same bit of information out or not um, whether it's the identical thing or not or is, is a different question, but the bits of information that compose Moby Dick are distinguishable from the bits of information that compose, um, I forget what the other one was. Uh, a Tale of know, Two Cities. A Tale of Two Cities, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and those, and that's, and that the difference is ultimately going to be cast out in terms of this set of fundamental bits so that you know maybe that's you know how many how many bits of information are in a, a book of that sort I don't know but um, ultimately it would all be specified in terms of the arrangements of the fundamental elements um, at this point right. quarks and electrons um, and that would be the two arrangements would be different uh, as between yeah. um, these two but it, but ultimately you know one of the crucial things that distinguishes the one from the other is the positions of the particles yes so position is always going to be something that you can recover. Seems to be the claim. Right. As far as I know, um, as far as I know, the claim is that uh, given the way the world empirically, I think that what, what they're claiming is that this is an empirical claim, not a conceptual claim. Although I might be wrong, this might be one of the things that I'm wrong about because when you talk to physicists, it's hard, and I don't talk to them. I mean, when you hear them talk, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I, you might have noticed I spend most of my time hanging out with neuroscientists and psychologists, and I don't know that many physicists, to be honest with you. I want to know more. Um, I know a couple of mathematicians and stuff, but uh, anyway. So, but when when you hear them talk, it, it sounds like um, uh, it's hard to distinguish what's a conceptual claim from what's an empirical prediction. Uh, I think that in this case, what they're saying is that it's an empirical. It turns out as a matter of empirical fact that this is the way the world is. That it's reversible. Gotcha. Yeah, but let me. You know what? If you if you want, I'll do. Uh, let me do some research. And let's talk about this again next week because I wasn't really. Yeah, let's thinking, get to it. Yeah, let's get to it, and maybe we could get someone on. I'll, maybe I'll find someone who might want to talk to us about this because I would like to. I, I feel like this information paradox is at some cutting edge stuff right now, and that it's very important to understand what's going on with it. Um, although, you know, black holes, uh, no one really knows. I mean, you know, we, we've never. We, anyway, I don't want to start us talking about what counts as evidence. Um,
By the way, did you hear about those rumors about the that they maybe are got that there's some question about the uh, space gravity ripples and the inflation yeah. confirmation yeah. stuff? I, I think it's going to weather. I think it might weather through the storm. But I was remember talking about that that we should be a bit cautious when you get such clear confirmation when you don't expect it. Um, now I don't think it's something as obvious. I, I think they show that it's not something as obvious as the dust particles or whatever. Uh, but there are lots of assumptions which go into interpreting that background radiation, um, the cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, and those assumptions aren't always legitimate. But then again, who knows? So uh, I think this is – I, I want to talk more about this cut because we, we've been doing a lot of mind stuff. And, of course, this is space-time mind, so that's fine. But I want to get back to the space part. I'm glad to hear you say that. I want to, I want to talk to some uh, physics people. They could yeah. be philosophers of physics. That's fine. Uh, I'd like to do, you know, talk to some uh, metaphysics people. Pure metaphysics. Let's get them on here. Logic people, math who people. Who are the metaphysics people? I don't know. There's got to be know. some of them out there. There's some metaphysics people out there. We got to get Chris McDaniel on. He's he's uh he's into Hegel. Is right he here. a metaphysics person? <laughs> I think uh, he might have a he might be in the Lumpel and Goliath. <laughs> Might be one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, oh, so that's too bad. <laughs> you know, but look again. You know, and this is a, a something again. If we want to let me, I don't. I thought you had to go, so I was going about to end. I want to. I want to get a last word in. Can I have the last word? Go ahead. It's a thing I keep wanting to bring up when we talk about science versus philosophy. Yeah. And it's it's two applications of Sturgeon's law to this debate. Uh -huh. uh, for those of you who don't know what Sturgeon's Law is, Theodore Sturgeon was a science fiction author and someone once said to him, uh, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't like science fiction very much. The problem with science fiction is that 90% of it is all crap. And, and Theodore Sturgeon's response was, well, you know, 90% of everything is crap. So don't hold that against science fiction. That became known as Sturgeon's Law. Sturgeon's Law says 90% of everything is crap. And okay. I think that, that there are two interesting applications of this to the, <laughs> this debate about the value of philosophy with respect to, to science. Uh, the, the, the first one is um, that it's on, and this is a point I think uh, so I, I saw someone make on the new apps blog kind of recently. It's unfair if you're going to talk about comparisons between philosophy and science, it's unfair to take the best of science and compare it to just ab uh, average philosophy or just uh -huh. some randomly collected, co right? Because like Eric is that who made that point? I believe so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So like, look, yeah, 90 percent of everything is crap. That applies to science too. There's just a lot of like really lame, uninteresting science people like found some completely. Um, trivial result, but they had to do it, so they get tenure or whatever. There's just a lot of like crap out there, uh, and then also there's like falsified stuff. Uh, Ninety percent of everything is crap. That that applies to science, and it's unfair to to look at the best of science and then compare it to average or, or poor philosophy. You should look at the best of philosophy. Yeah. Uh, but here's the second application of Sturgeon's law, which also kind of makes things seem a little bit unfair. 
um, unfair against philosophy. If you look, I'm a big believer in the queen of the sciences theory of what philosophy is. A lot of people have said this. I don't know who said it first. That Why does it have to be a queen? Let, let it be a queen for a change. Come on. For um, a change. <laughs> yeah, like a queen to given birth. Uh, I have to be royal, is my point. It's awesome. No masters. True. <laughs> anyway, this is the phrase people use, uh, but it's the mother of, of the sciences. Um, and so if you look, so yes, 90% of everything is crap. If you look at the best of philosophy, what is the best of philosophy? It, well, it's science. When philosophy is done really, really well, things get clarified to such a way that you can that it, that they branch off or they they calve off like a a chunk of a glacier and they go float off on their own and so um, it's it, it kind of becomes like a brain drain like all the best of of philosophy doesn't get to stick around and be called philosophy anymore uh, and if you don't take that into account then again uh, philosophy yeah, but that's looks not true, poor though. in comparison. What's not true? The the queen of the sciences theory of philosophy. Well, That's fuck queens. True. I don't. I recognize no queens. Um, so. You, but you like mothers. Uh, I like some mothers. Yeah, I like, don't like other mothers. Um, you like so, some mothers. That's good enough. <laughs> That's. I like some mothers. Um, so is it the mother of the sciences? I don't know. That sounds like the Russell thing to me. It sounds like what you're saying is that. When, when there's a method for answering a question, it gets called a science, and then so philosophy is kind of, um, it's, it's, it, it's, its honor lies in the fact that it's generated empirically testable stuff, but it doesn't do anything on its own. That's, is that, that sounds like the view. Well, I mean, maybe we could separate some component claims. One, one of the claims is that it gives birth to sciences. Another claim is that that's its worth. The only good yeah. part about philosophy is that it gives. Yeah, can we? I don't like the. I'm not even. I don't like birth. Can we talk about amoebas? Like you know, so it's just an asexual reproduction. <laughs> okay, but that okay. What's the, what's the verb? So I mean, that. there's a. What's the verb for that? If it's not birth. Uh, mitosis or something maybe. <laughs> no, not. Uh, what's that? There's a, there's a word. There's a word for the splitting, the ace, a, asexual reproduction of uh, single cells, for instance. Um, but anyway, so if your idea is that what you have is a bunch of questions and then it gets divided in a, in a kind of way, I, I don't think that's right. Um, uh, you don't I think mean, it's true that that's where psychology came from? Is that it used to be philosophy? I thought you were. That's something that you were endorsing earlier. Uh, no, I don't think I... Well, yeah, I mean, the history is that, you know, was Hume a psychologist or not? I mean, I, there was no such thing as psychology. He was, a, he was a philosopher, a natural philosopher, and he happened to talk a lot about the mind. Um, uh, he did, but, but to, so uh, this, to, to me, this, again, so this is why I don't think I was being very clear last time. Um, to me, there's a, clearly a difference in the kinds of, in the kinds of activities um, that philosophers and scientists engage in, and the activities involve this. Do you here? What do you like to think about? Do you like to think about experimental design and confounds, and the way in which a certain experimental results might be explained better by alternative? Um, uh, excuse me. How how confounds might have not ruled out 
other alternative explanations of the data? Well, then if so, you're an experimentalist. Um, yeah. And if you like thinking about how to design experiments and how to design better experiments, then probably you're a psychologist um, because that's what science does, the empirical sciences anyway. And this is my big beef about XFI is that if you go and talk, look at two psychologists talking to each other about what their data supports, nine-tenths of the conversation is about the experimental design and the confounds and the p-values and the statistical analysis. But if you look at two X5 people talking to each other, it's all about, well, we did this study and this suggests this, and then they just talk about the... But there's a question about the data and how it's gathered, what prompts did you use, are they leading, is there alternative... And sometimes they do talk about that, but not nearly enough. Um, so to me, what scientists do is that's what they talk about. They talk about what, what model does this data fit and, what, and, and, and by the way, lots of people assume it fits a model and then you find out it doesn't or something. But philosophers don't, think, don't often think about that stuff, although we do sometimes, but we, we're, we talk about something else, which is how a bunch of different data fits together at a more general theoretical level. So the difference between me, for me, for, between a philosopher and a scientist is A, are you interested in experimental design? Or are you interested in theory um, and connecting stuff at a more broad level? I did both. So I have a master's degree in psychology where I did experimental stuff. And I have a master's degree in philosophy where I did philosophy stuff. And then I decided to go to grad school for philosophy with an emphasis in cog-sci because I don't enjoy doing experiments. I don't enjoy doing it. Um, I sort of like thinking about the experimental design. I, I designed some experiments that I thought were okay, and I ran them. But I don't like putting electrodes on people's heads, <laughs> and I don't like drilling holes in the heads of rats and chopping them up and serially slicing their brains. Um, and you know that, so that's why I chose philosophy over science. Really, was because I don't enjoy experimenting. I enjoy. I would, I would say the same thing about myself. Right. So, but that's not. But that's a view of this. That's not a cleaving. There's no cleaving there. Um, it's the philosophy is internal to the science, and the science is internal to the philosophy. Well, now we disagree. I think there was a cleaving. I think that the the, the main the main thing um, that leads up to the cleaving is trying to figure out, trying to massage uh, concepts in such a way that you could figure out how you could go and do experiments. Right. But my, uh, but the point I was making last time was that. Uh, if you look at the Neil Grass the Tysons of the world, then what he said was that if you want to contribute to the moving frontier of science, you need to do science. And I said, I agree with that. And it, I almost said uh, that isn't that kind of a trivially obvious truth, that if you want to contribute to the science, you need to know how to do the science. Yeah, but um, make so, so, so my point was that um, you can't do good philosophy uh, a philosophy that's relevant to, to science without no without doing some science so that it's not enough to sort of say oh well I th I I think you need to actually do some science I mean you know that's why you need to work in a lab laboratory work is important you need to see what goes on in there and how to think about how to design experiment you need to see what they're doing in order to be relevant to what's going on over there just like they need to see what we're doing in order to be relevant to the whole package um, so I don't think there's a cleaving in that sense I think that the philosophy and the science go together, uh, but by the philosophy, I mean the right kind of philosophy, empirically informed. And just like I think the right kind of science is philosophically informed science, I think the right kind of both of these is that they inform each other. I wouldn't go as far as Quine when he says philosophy of science is philosophy enough, um, because I do think that uh, if you let the you know the weird metaphysicians of the world do their stuff, then maybe some empiric, empir it'll have some empirical content later in life. 
and that's why you let people work on weird mathematical constructs too, uh, because later it might turn out that we can find an application for that. String theory is a big example of that, I think. Um, so I don't I, think it's. Yeah. I don't I, want to. I, yeah, go ahead. I sorry. think the labels of the the science label and the philosophy label aren't very useful. I think uh, it's more useful to talk as you just were about experimenting and experimentalism and, and there is an interesting contrast between ex doing experiment or uh, more broadly collecting data right. on the one hand and then on the other hand uh, constructing theory, constructing explanations um, and you know it's not a super clear distinction like there's some kind of like fog, there's a little bit of vagueness in, in between um, but nonetheless there is this distinction and I think that you can't just collect data. You can't right. just be an experimentalist. It has to be informed by theory. There has to be some some theory or other that it's either supporting or uh, or refuting. There's no right. such thing as the theory free zone. Um, and uh, you know, similarly, like theory. Theory but, that but has there just is, zero I mean, look, connection so, to I don't know. I, I, it depends on what lab you're in. So I work in a couple different labs, and I don't, I don't want to derail your thought, people. I just want to suggest one thing. So, you know, uh, one of the labs I worked in, we were looking at uh, the hippocampus of rats, and um, we were trying to figure out how, how memories were stored. You know, this is a guy yeah. I was working in a lab, James Crowback. He was a postdoc in Rutgers in a Bujaki lab, and he's very into the synchrony thing. So the, uh, the hypothesis that neural synchrony is important for forming and storing memories. The lab was sort of generally speaking involved in pursuing that hypothesis. Um, yeah. So that's what you mean by the theory has to inform what you're doing. That yeah. they, they're looking for something, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, th the theory would guide kind of questions that you would ask, no hypotheses and so forth that you would expect. Uh, but but the but but they were very clear that the theory wasn't that the data guides the theory, not the other way around. So you set some parameter, you ask a question, and then you follow the data and you modify the theory. And so there's a kind of continual reciprocal back and forth. And so there is a kind right. of theory-free zone in the sense that you know we just want to see if there's synchrony in between these two things or not. Forget about what it means or anything. We're just looking for some something actually. And a large part of the day-to-day -day activity of the lab was completely detached from theory. And in lab meetings and so forth, when people would bring up theory, like what about memories and what about storage and transit, forget about that. No, no, no. This neuron and these chemicals. So I do think that scientists, and you're right, ultimately it's not theory-free, but I do think they perceive a lot of the, a lot of the work as sort of just being theory-neutral. And that the theory, or a theory, you know, reciprocal or something like that. That not totally independent, maybe, but sort of quasi-independent. That's that's good enough for me. I yeah. think it's it's very rare. There are some interesting cases where there's just like, hey, you know what? Let's go. Let's go see what happens. Right. We, we've got no expectation of which way it's going to go. Right. Uh, there are cases like that in science. Um, but um, but mostly it's the way you just described it, where there is, in some sense, that there is theory hanging in the background. But what I want I wanted to focus on the other the other side of this is that there's there's it's it's really hard to find any uh, theory uh, theoretical activity that's worth doing that doesn't have some kind of connection to um, data collection. Yeah, that's even, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think. Even like so-called pure mathematics, the reason we care about that and don't just dismiss it as some idle pursuit like solving crossword puzzles, 
yeah. is because it does have uh, these kind of tenuous connections. It's not always clear what the connections are. That that you know we find out what the connections are later, and 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 uh, that's fine. We don't have to. I'm not saying we always have to know ahead of time like how it's going to help science or how it's going to help engineering. But right. but part of like what um, justifies the expenditure of effort. I mean, it's hard to see how that's true of things like number theory, though. I mean, I see how that's true of some advanced mathematics, but like, you know, gold box conjecture, the twin prime conjecture, these kinds of things that are just about numbers, um, and the, the distribution of the primes, for instance, you know, the Ryan, the Reinbach or whatever sequence, the, you know, the Reinbold, or why, oh my god, I should, why did I bring this shit up? Anyway, there's some, like, you can prove some stuff about how they're asymptotic, really, they sort of fade out, but they never completely thin out, I think it's called the Reinbold, whatever. Something. So, is how is that? I mean, you you said tenuous, but I mean, number theory seems to be totally kind of like not even in the ballpark of things. That but are, but look, we've we've gotten we as like a society of knowledge seekers, we have gotten great gains by letting mathematicians just do whatever is interesting to them. Absolutely. No, that's right. And it turns out, you know. But see, I mean, the problem is, you know, the proof of the no interesting number. Do you know that proof? That the yeah. <laughs> the. the Assume there is an interesting number, then. Right. I mean, excuse me. Assume that there is no interesting number, then that number is the only uninteresting number. Therefore, that makes it interesting. So you can't have an uninteresting number. And you, I mean, so you know. I guess that's a kind of a parody of some of the stuff that number theorists do because that's not. I mean, is that is? I, I guess I read a paper on that once actually, where someone was talking about the, this as a theorem or something, but. But I mean, I, I think you're right that some of this stuff is so far out there um, that we don't. A lot of people will say, "Why did we let them do that?" And I think the answer you gave is the right one. We let them do that because who knows when it will later pay off. You, you know, and this is something I heard Massimo Pigliucci say. I think is kind of interesting. Um, and 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 because one of the things that really has boggled my mind ever since I was like a tiny kid, the thing that has like mystified me is that there are that the world can be mathematically described. I mean. How, how on earth could it possibly be the case that you could calculate something and get an answer for something that happens out there in the world? I mean, the first time I read about that, I just I did I didn't I didn't expect it. Uh, first of all, yeah. you know, so when people poo-poo Aristotle and shit, I'm like, well, who the fuck thought that this would be true? That you could that this, and so that has always boggled my mind. And then uh, yep. Pigliucci said something that I thought was interesting. He said, look, you know, maybe the case is just this: there's an infinite way of defining mathematical relationships. And so one of those accidentally describes the way things work around here, but it's not a deep fact about our world. It's just kind of um, follows from the cheapness of mathematical description that you can, you know, that, you, know you think f equals m a is a, a really deep fact about the world, but of course, you know, there's an infinite way of putting f and m and a's together in various ways. And so one of those happens to describe the way this world works out. But and so it's a kind of, I guess. Adaption of the multiverse <laughs> uh, yeah. strategy to mathematics, the the multi mathematic verse or something that there's just this plenitude of mathematical formalism, so that it, we shouldn't be that all that surprised that right. one of those mathematical formalisms fits onto the stuff around here. Um, and while I won't endorse that view, I, I think it's interesting. I would ex I think it's worth exploring. I, I haven't yeah. I hadn't thought of it previously. Um, I do. I, and I, I it get it back connects to with it. some Tegmark stuff, right? The, the I was going to say, yeah, Tegmark, that guy pisses me off. I, I mean, <laughs> sweet why guy. Why does he piss you off? You know what? You know what's funny is you know why he was invited, not why, my speculation about why he was invited as a keynote speaker um, 
to Tucson, not only is it because his ideas are interesting, but you know, Dave yeah. uh, always talks about when he was young and he was a mathematician, he had this theory that every mathematical formulism was conscious. And so he says, you know that, that book, Five Answers or Five Questions or whatever? He, he wrote that. He did yeah. that. And I read his, and it's interesting. And he says that he had a theory that every mathematical formalism was conscious to some degree, and someone asked him, so is pi conscious? And his answer, 16 years old or something like that, his answer was, yes, pi is conscious but asleep so that there's not much going on, but that even that anyway. simple mathematical structure. So I, I think he's interested in this. He called it his theory of abstractions, and yeah. I think he's, he's interested in this idea that mathematics is like real and that it might just be what reality is. By the way, I want the record to show I don't actually have any ill will towards Max Tegmark. I think he's... No one does. He's a nice guy. Smart guy, too. Yeah, both very smart, very very nice. I do disagree with him about the his mathematical... Uh, what, what does he call it? The mathematical thesis? Yeah. Mathematical universe thesis? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we... Well, what's know, wrong with that? that? I mean, I, I, wonder, I wonder what the difference between that... Because I, I haven't read anything that he's written. I've only seen some stuff. But I would like to read it, yeah. or I can even better talk to him. But I wonder yeah. what the difference between his view is and the other view is that, you know, um, that when something falls to the ground, it's actually calculating or computing the inverse square law, so that, you know, it's an embodied compu computation. Is that different than his view or not? I mean, I don't know. Well, I think this is a giant can of worms we should open on some other day. Yeah. We'll open this oh, can, can of worm kick-ass. <laughs> can of worm. worm <laughs> exactly. Bye. Bye.